learn something about everything and everything about something. What's up? How you doing? How you doing? What's up? Welcome back to the Wild Business Growth Podcast. This is your place to hear from a new entrepreneur every single Wednesday morning who's turning wild ideas into wild growth. I'm your host, Max Brandstetter, founder and podcast producer at Max Podcasting. And you can email me at Max, there's a little squeak there, and you can email me at Max at MaxPodcasting.com to save time with your high quality podcast. This is episode 185 or Uno Ocho Cinco. And today's guest is David Perry. David is an absolute legend in the video game and entrepreneurship. We'll call it video gamepreneurship, uh, e-commerce ship space. And he was the co-founder and CEO of Gaikai, which was acquired by Sony and turned into Sony's PlayStation Now, where you can play video games over the cloud. Crazy Crazy cool stuff. Before that, he was a longtime video game developer, including games like Earthworm Jim, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, games for The Matrix and The Terminator, and many, many more. And if that wasn't enough, it's not like he's done anything with his career. He is now the CEO and co-founder of Caro, who is revolutionizing the influencer and brand collab space, doing some crazy cool, crazy Caro things there as well. In this interview, we talk things from all of those worlds, plus things from worlds that you might just have to imagine yourself. It is the legendary Perry. Enjoy the show. Alrighty, we are here with David Perry, a legend in the video game space and entrepreneurship space who now with Caro has gone into e-commerce and Shopify and influencers as well space. David, really excited for our conversation today. How are you doing? Oh, I'm great. Thanks so much for, for inviting me. Of course, of course. And uh, and that was the interview. So oh, you did great. No, <laughs> we're, we're going to get into just some, some really cool and breakthrough things you're doing with Caro. But before that, of course, I mean, as a kid growing up with video games, I, I still love the it's it's just crazy how much the video game world has blossomed and it's taken on a whole other meaning. But uh, I, I I grew up with some of the stuff you touched, including Earthworm Jim. So shout out Earthworm Jim. But Ruby, <laughs> what is the most difficult part of designing video games? Well, that's a good question. So there's two sides. There's the are you making the game for yourself just to have fun, or are you trying to actually have a business? Because those are two different discussions altogether. So one is, you know, hey, I got this crazy idea and it's going to star a goldfish and I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do. And, you know, the reality is that might not sell. And then the other is, well, actually, I have this licensing deal for a movie that's going to ship on a certain date. And, and now you're under intense pressure to deliver a great game by a certain date. And that's very hard. So, you know, you can see how it's, it's really down to what is your goal? And so I found in my career, I did both. I, I would make something just for fun because I wanted to make it. And then every now and again, we would do a movie deal. Um, and the movie deals would pay for the, for the time when you're just experimenting. 
that that worked out really well for me. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing when you can get some funding to experiment. I, th I th think that's a good place to be. How did you learn to design video games in the first place? What happened was um, I was in school in Northern Ireland. So I'm actually from Belfast in Northern Ireland. And yeah, you we'll get to that later, but you, you do an incredible job of hiding your accent. Yeah, my accent got so beaten up when I got to America. I was sitting in a room <laughs> full of Americans and they kept going, huh? Huh? And I, and I was like, oh, I better fix this. Um, and so <laughs> I, I ended up getting this weird in between situation going on. Um, but anyway, uh, in the there was no video game industry um, in Ireland at that time. So I was trying to sort of learn what I could from magazines and things like that, trying to get uh, to see what computer code looked like. The graphics, I had a, a, a Sinclair ZX81. Um, in America, that was called the Timex 1000. It's a little black and white computer with 1K of memory. And so I was trying to make games for that. And I, I found that, you know, it was initially you have the problem of, I don't know how to program, so I better learn how to program. And then the second part is I need to work out how to make this fun because it's not fun right now, this game that I'm making. And so you start learning. And after many, 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 many years of learning how to make games, I ended up writing a book on game design that's like it's over a thousand pages. And the idea was to try to prove to people that everybody can make games pretty much. And when I say everybody, I don't mean everybody, everybody, but a lot of people can. And the way I define it is actually quite simple is if you were to close your eyes, think of some location that you haven't been to. So can you invent a location in your mind and then describe it to me? And if you can describe that location to me, then that tells me that you possibly have what it takes. And if you can then describe that location to me in incredible detail, like you can really describe every single detail, then now you're, you're really in business. And that, that, that generally separates people, the ability to really imagine things down to being able to talk about the small details. And, um, and from there, um, games design is actually quite straightforward. It's, 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 um, you know, I have three things I talk about skill, risk and strategy. This, this is actually helpful in business too, but skill, risk and strategy are the things that compel us to stay engaged with something. Skill means that when you're playing a video game, are you getting any better at it? Imagine you play a video game and you just get worse and worse and worse at it, then that's not actually going to last very long. You're going to get bored really quickly. So, so skills important that you feel improvement, you feel growth, you feel your, your, there's some form of mastery going on. Um, and then the second is risk. Um, I don't know what it is, but risk is really valuable. Um, you know, if you look at all the games, the casinos, everything out there, this idea of taking a risk and getting a reward for it is a very, very, very um, powerful thing. And it doesn't mean just gambling. I mean, if you're playing Tetris and you take a risk and it pays off, you, you feel really good about that. And the third thing is strategy. And strategy means that, okay, it didn't work out, but I've got another idea. I'm not out of ideas yet on how to play this game. Now, imagine you design a game where there is no strategy. There's, you just, you're on rails. You just, you have no choices. It's gonna be the same as it was last time then that's actually not interesting. You'll get bored of it really quickly. So the idea of strategy is I tried this, I tried this, I tried this, it hasn't worked. I'm still not able to you know, complete that level, but now I'm gonna try this and, and, and then that works. 
that's when strategy comes in. If you have all three of those things, you have a video game. In fact, you probably have a better video game than quite a few video games that are out there. <laughs> and my, the, my, the secret that I say to people when I'm talking to students is I say to them, if they actually want to make a video game and also have a, an impact on the industry, make the game funny. Out of 100 video games made, I would say 1% are funny. 99% um, are quite serious affairs um, where you're going through warehouses, killing a whole bunch of people. And if you make your game funny, it's, it's, it's literally an incredible way to get some attention. Um, and that's what we did with Earthworm Jim, and it worked really well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you had me at the title, though. I mean, an earthworm named Jim who's like yeah. all buff and, <laughs> and has quite the wardrobe like that. I mean, uh, you had it from the get-go, but I really like your your thought exercise of visualizing a place that doesn't exist or you've never been to before. But I think it, it proved that I should not be creating video games because I instantly thought of Pandora from Avatar when you thought of that, <laughs> which somebody has already created before. So that world's very cool, but uh, not not exactly the most original anymore. Well, that's actually another one. James Cameron's an interesting character. I got to make his first game, uh, the Terminator movie game. And I think James Cameron's interesting, actually, because he doesn't just tell a story, he creates a universe. Um, and, and so the Terminator could easily have just been taken, you know, it could have just been a quick story about this killer robot. But in, instead, it feels like there's, there's this universe. In fact, there's two universes. There's where the robots come from and where we are and, and how all that interacts. But Avatar was that on steroids, right? The idea of this whole world, how it works, what's going on. And the fact that he's now got all these new movies coming that will take place within that universe is a perfect example that shows that he has that that capability. I think that's quite valuable if you if you if your imagination is big enough to be able to take it into the point where you would start to be able to answer questions like what kind of money do they use there and all of this kind of stuff where you've actually thought about it is really interesting. So that that that's usually quite a rare thing, but I think that adds extra value especially for games. <laughs> Absolutely. And you see it with all the, you know, most iconic franchises of all time like Star Wars and Harry Potter and like these worlds that authors and directors and just creators and video game designers in general create, it's so impressive the level of detail that you can get to. So it's really interesting to think about all those seemingly minute details that you think about, but that's what makes it such a a more special experience than just a, okay, they, <laughs> here, here's a 2D something with no substance that, um, you know, was just called aliens or I don't even know where I'm going with that one. So let's get to your Pandora or world of of video games. And I want to start here with Gaikai, which uh, I, I, I pronounced that right, correct? You actually did, which was impressive. Okay. Um, I thought I did, but I like somehow I, I, I tripped up getting it correct. <laughs> Well, here's the, here's the deal. One of my uh, co-founders thought that this was a great name and no one can spell it or pronounce it. And you did, which is impressive. It's a Japanese word. Thank you. And I took a marketing class. I got invited to this marketing class that these very, uh, very big brands send their 
people to, and I didn't know this existed, but there are marketing classes out there where they sip wine and are getting trained for insanely expensive amounts, you know, a, a very expensive uh, cost to actually do this. Um, but they get trained on, on where marketing's going and what, what all the tricks are. And one, a friend of mine was speaking at this thing, so he invited me just to tag along, and I did. And uh, I found that fascinating because the discussion was about um, mystique marketing and this idea of some people being on the inside of something and some being on the outside. So if somebody pronounces uh, Versace and somebody else says Versace and, uh, and they get it wrong, then the people who know how to pronounce it correctly feel closer and, and more, uh, I don't know, somehow more associated with the brand because they know how to pronounce it. And so imagine I go to this weird marketing event thing and then I come back and, and my co-founder wants to call our company a strange hard name. I was like, this sounds like a clever idea, so let's do it. Uh, and we did. <laughs> um, and of course, we struggled the entire time with everyone pronouncing it wrong. But what was so fascinating about it is that it's actually a Japanese word, and we ended up getting bought by a Japanese company. And it was, being, you wrote it into, into the future. You, you called your shot. Yeah, and they really appreciated the fact that we seemed to like Japanese culture because not only was the name of the company Japanese, but the name of everything that we built internally was also Japanese. So all of our technology, we even named our servers with Japanese names and things like that. It was a very, it became just a fun cultural thing, but it turned out to be actually valuable, um, you know, when they were, were considering buying our company. There you go. Well, I'm going to start working on a company that uses completely Northern Irish slang in case you're interested in investing. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Comes full circle. That's incredible. This idea of mystique marketing. Now that you met, I mean, you mentioned Versace, but there's a lot of brands like that, especially in kind of the Silicon Valley startup era where there's some names that you're like, oh my God, I mean, people are probably all over the board with how they pronounce it. But there's that level of discomfort there, but it's also... It is a welcoming feeling when you when you know that you can you can pronounce something right or you have a good understanding of something. That mystique marketing, I think, is exactly how my fiance Dana feels when I mispronounced Chianti, and it's Chianti. That was <laughs> early on in our relationship. Exactly, but we've come a long way. <laughs> it's just a funny thing. It's interesting. So yeah, that that's that's what we ended up. So Gaiki, no, I'm just kidding. So Gaikai, you were a video game designer for many, many years and worked on games in a number of different spaces, a number of really cool characters and, and earthworms, as we mentioned. But what made you get interested in this idea of video games over the cloud? What happened was um, a friend of mine bought the name Acclaim. Acclaim was a big video game publisher in the past. They made M NBA Jam and things like that. Oh, man. I, got, I just got so much nostalgia when you said that, by the way. Yeah. And so imagine, um, we, we, you know, he was thinking he wanted to bring a claim back and he, he asked me to join him. So I joined him to help him do that. And what, what was interesting is we decided to really, really investigate China and, and South Korea where their markets were on fire. And so the two of us flew out there and met with various publishers. And it was really fascinating because in certain cases, we were the first Westerners to ever visit. And they have government agencies that they really want 
their companies to do business deals with American companies. So they actually, it's hard to explain, but they literally, uh, imagine you were going to go to South Korea for meetings. Um, I think the company was called, or the organization was called Kotra. But um, imagine you didn't know who to meet with. You don't know the CEOs of all of these South Korean video game companies, but they actually set up the meetings. And not only did they set up the meetings, but they set it up with the CEOs. So you're, you're meeting with the CEOs of all of these companies. And so the result was that we, we, we learned a lot really quickly about what was working and what wasn't working in Asia. And they were doing some very clever things to do with making video games free and then, and then you pay later. So instead of charging $60 for a video game, they charge nothing. And then um, you would pay later in the game. And so we found this very interesting. So we decided to, I started giving speeches about this um, in the West you know, about my experiences and, you know, what I was seeing and what I was learning. They had interesting games. This is the same idea of like, I remember when I was growing up, like Call of Duty was so big. I mean, you had to buy the game at first, but after you bought the game, you could buy like bonus maps that you could play in. And there were like different things that you could do to, to plus up and pay once you're in the game. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah. Um, what, what they, and, and what we learned from the Asians, because they were doing this for so long, was that um, they realized that people will pay to save time. It's the most valuable asset we have. So here's the point is in America, we would make a store and offer you lots of different, you know, logos you could put on your sports car or something like that. Over there, they would say, I, you know, oh, I see you're walking everywhere. Would you like to buy a horse? <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, what, what, they, what they learned really quickly was anything that saves time would sell really well. And anything that was just vanity, meaning it's just, you know, a logo for your, your suit of armor doesn't sell very well. And so you could, in a way, save a lot of time, not building lots and lots of pointless vanity items and instead sell things that actually impact the growth of the character or the, or the, or the player. So they feel like they're getting somewhere faster. Um, that's what actually sells. And to be clear, you don't have to pay for these things, so you can play for free. But if you do pay for them, then that person is saving time. And I, I can't even begin to tell you how many amazing things I heard and saw. It's just insane. And the way the way they think, uh, the way in which they were, were developing, there were some ideas that I just thought, I'll, I'll give you one example. So I was watching one developer just looking over their shoulder while they're working. They had some people playing together, boys and girls, and they split them into boys and girls separately. So a, a, imagine you're in a room and the, and the girls go on the right and the boys go on the left. Then they do a dance competition so that they have a dancing interface. So you can actually have a dance off between the boys and the girls. And then a wheel, a wheel would spin and for whoever lost. So imagine the boys lose, then this wheel spins and this is a humiliation wheel that determines what crazy costume the boys are going to be forced. <laughs> All their avatars are suddenly dressed as giant pandas and they can barely walk because they're, you know, they're wearing giant panda suits and all <laughs> the girls are laughing because not only did they beat them, but they humiliated them. And so I'm watching this. Imagine you're in another country like, I, you know, I'm well versed in American, uh, you know, in Western game development, but seeing this, looking over these people's shoulders, I'm like, this is genius what you've actually done here because what i was seeing what i was seeing was when the kids stopped playing they actually apologized when they left 
um, which I'd never seen before. So when, when, when gamers tend to play and get thrown into a, um, some kind of, uh, like I'm gonna compete against you, I don't know who you are and there's no relationship. I don't even know what country you're in quite often, but let's say, you know, it just says you're playing someone from England. There's no relationship between us. So we just get on with our dance battle and then we move on, right? But imagine in this situation where everyone's laughing together and you can see the chat lights up because they're they're kind of having fun together. And then what I would see is they'd say, look, I'm so sorry, I got to do my homework. I have to leave now. And so they apologized to strangers that they had to leave, right? And that that's amazing. And so that kind of stuff I found very interesting and I sort of bring those ideas back, but this is an incredibly long answer to your question. So I will get to the answer to your question. You can make it like three times as long. Four times might be the cutoff, but three times I'll give it to you. So, so what was happening is these companies, if you wanted to know what their problem was, is they the problem was getting people to install a game and would take time. And so, they were on this never ending because they, they would end up with millions of concurrent gamers. So there'd be millions of people playing a single game. That was really the goal of these companies. And so when you start talking about getting a million concurrent players, it has to be very, very easy for them to get into the game. And so we came back to, to the West and really sat down and put our thinking hats on, like what could we possibly do to make it easier to get into a video game? And we started to build a technology to do that. The thing that will make you chuckle is that that technology was built with Flash. And the reason that it was with Flash is because at the time, there was this game called Farmville on Facebook. Oh, that was, yeah, that was yeah. making. What do you mean at the time? I'm, I'm sure it's still massive somewhere. It probably is. probably still out there somewhere. Zenga's probably still, still squeezing blood There's from that There's probably stone. a Farmville TikTok that's... I mean, if somebody isn't doing that yet, that's, there you go. I, I kid you not. I went and talked to major investors and they said to me, David, you've missed the boat. Like you're, you're, you know, the game industry has now changed. It's not like <laughs> the way it used to be. If you're not on flash, you're not in the game industry. It was kind of funny, like that kind of attitude. Oh my God. So in reality, we had to, we, we experimented with trying to make flash have a game uh, and we actually got that working which is kind of crazy where the game is not running in flash it's running on a server elsewhere so the game is running on a server and then it would just appear out of nowhere into flash on your device that that was cool but i ended up giving a speech uh, the dice conference they 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 gave me um, the, the opportunity to speak at that and i did and i talked about what i think is the future is when games Basically, the tagline I, I was sort of ended up going with was everything everywhere instantly. So this idea that every video game, you know, you know the way when you have uh, digital music, you can have Spotify, for example, and it can have just an enormous amount of songs. Why can't we have that for games? Why can't I just have all the games, you know, in my hand everywhere I go? And yeah. so that was the idea. And I explained it. I explained the problems with doing it. But then I had these uh, engineers reached out to me from the Netherlands and uh, they saw my speech. I mean, how weird is this world, right? How connected are we? Uh, but these <laughs> two guys reach out from the Netherlands saying, I saw your speech and, did, and we're actually working on this technology right now. And so I'm like, I don't really believe you. I need to see this. And suddenly I was playing Mario Kart, you know, in a browser served from the Netherlands. And once I saw that running, I was like, oh my gosh, this is gonna, this is actually possible now. I ended up um, leaving a claim and starting a company with those two engineers. And we were, we were their co-founders in, uh, in Gaikai. And then we built the technology to actually do this, you know, for scale. 
And it was really fun because it did allow, and we did really interesting deals. Like we did one with Facebook. We had games like Crisis just appearing in Facebook. We had, uh, which, you know, you'd see people on Twitter going, you know, what is this magic? Because suddenly Crisis would appear on their laptop that's unable to play Crisis because the game isn't running on the laptop. It's running in the cloud. But the video performance was so high that it felt to them like it was playing locally. I can't really see a future where that won't happen. You know, and there are millions of people paying today for this service. PlayStation ended up buying our company. But I, I don't think that cloud gaming has yet had their their first real game. And what I mean by that is is virtual reality was very interesting, like when Oculus was was really getting virtual reality going. Um, but the thing they desperately needed was one game that really made it great. Like, what is a great VR game like? Farmville. And, and it, well, in a way, you're sort of hoping to imagine, <laughs> oh, my God, VR Farmville. I'm, I'll bet you Zenga's working on it. Every, everyone's farming and gardening in their living room. I mean, what else could you ask for? The, the VR thing is uh, is really an interesting problem because if that game hadn't shown up, I think VR would just fizzle out. But Beat Saber was this game that showed up. Have you played that by any chance? No, Beat I have my, my VR experience is very limited. I've, I've tried stuff on before, but I don't, I don't own an Oculus or anything like that. But I know, I mean... People are going to listen to this like three years from now and be like, "Dude, what was this recorded in 1920?" Like, uh, I know the game. What you're talking, I know what you're talking about with Beat Saber, though. Yeah, so Beat Saber is like a killer app. It just absolutely, it's amazingly cool, and it makes VR really. It demonstrates. It's like the demo app to say, "Well, this is why VR is cool. Check this out." The thing is with cloud gaming is we need a game that's made for the cloud, not one that's just running everywhere anyway. So like, you know, if Call of Duty runs locally, it's not the killer app we're looking for. We're looking for something where the game gets developed for the cloud that's impossible to run on a normal, like a PlayStation 5 or, a, or a, you know, any, any modern hardware. Um, you want PlayStation 8, PlayStation 9, that's the experience that you're trying to deliver and you should be able to deliver from the cloud. And when you do that, I think it's going to be very hard for people to go back to the old way things were. This is how the arcade industry got started. So when there were Pong games and all of this stuff at home, but when the arcade machines were really killing it, they, they, they were giving you an experience you can't get at home. Like it, it was, you would go to an arcade to play a game that, you know, you couldn't dream of being able to play at home. And it was also far too expensive. You couldn't afford even to buy the arcade machine yourself. So you would go to an arcade, put quarters in and, and play it. And, and effectively you would share that hardware with other people. That's what cloud gaming really needs to become is that idea that you're, I, I can't afford this experience at home, but damn, I wanna play it. Like, do you wanna play a flight simulator that can run on a $500 computer? Or do you wanna play a flight simulator that you just can't afford. <laughs> I, I got excited when you said that. Right, and uh, and that's that's my point is that those, that's what cloud gaming someday when somebody builds that. I was kind of hoping that Stadia would build that. I was out fingers crossed, but they started to build their own studio. Um, Jade Raymond was leading that, and and I thought, oh, they're going to do it because Jade has the credentials to pull that off, and then Jade left. And I was like, oh, no. And uh, that was a little sad because I thought for a minute maybe cloud gaming was really going to happen. You know, who, who knows? It could, 
it could be in any day now, and we might be, see, be seeing headlines about David Perry revolutionizing things once again. So you never know. If I was there, if I was still doing that, I would be, that's what I would be working on. I would be flat out trying to make that happen. Yeah, it seems like such a fun and just like crazy energy space. There's, the possibilities are really, really cool. So with Gaikai, you have the vision, you had the technology. Obviously, just doing speeches and getting them found around the world is was an effective strategy for you. So you're building, building, I'm sure, you know, working a crazy amount to bring this thing to reality. What was it, besides having a Japanese name, that you think made you attractive to Sony? Well, we were causing a lot of ripples in the force because we were, I was giving keynote speeches at every conference that was going. Um, I, I was just back to back making noise and beating the drum. And it does make sense that someday, I, at one point I asked the head of PlayStation um, a question. I just said to him, are you in the hardware business or, or are you in the gameplay business? And that's a very difficult question to ask a hardware manufacturer. Um, because the obvious answer is, well, we're in the hardware business, right? But when you actually look at the business of consoles, the consoles really don't make money. It's the games that make the money. The consoles create the platform to allow the games to be played. If there was some way that they could sell the games but not have to lose money on the platform, is that at all interesting? And you, it's hard to say, no, that's not interesting. I want to keep losing money on, on selling hardware especially now with component shortages and you know all of the the problems with even getting yeah you know the, 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 all the shipping issues is, is just endless uh problems um and so the cost to make hardware right now it's it's horrendous and so if there's a way to still sell your gameplay but without having to take a loss on the hardware you can imagine why that's sort of like hmm, we should probably investigate this and understand this more the other thing it does is potentially open up um, reach because you can get to more devices. Like you can place the, an example I, I kept saying, which I'm, again, I'm stunned that Stadia hasn't done is, <laughs> is uh, you, you have, this is, like, this is like the uh, anti-Stadia, not anti-Stadia, but no, the, no, this I'm is a, like the opposite Stadia podcast. I here. am very close friends with uh, Phil Harrison. I love Phil Harrison. He's a rock star. So nothing, nothing wrong with, uh, with that. What I'm saying is that, if you own YouTube, which they do, then why on earth aren't they making it so that you can be watching a game being played in YouTube and just click a button and join, right? I just, that to me is just this low hanging fruit is this idea of any video on YouTube should actually be playable, right? You should actually be able to go play that right now without even leaving YouTube. Yeah. There's no reason why you can't do that. There's endless opportunities. We did that with Walmart. So Walmart, I, I, I kind of laugh because we Walmart turned out to be the pioneers. Like, isn't that funny? You would think that Walmart was like this big, huge entity, wouldn't be able to move fast, but they ended up adding streaming games before anybody else, uh, before any <laughs> of the awesome. other retailers. Yeah. I, I mean, they, they've done a couple, a couple things business savvy since their founding, I think. Yeah, I, I was very, very impressed by that. So they had, you know, we we powered the games on walmart.com so you could play, you could try a game before you buy it. Um, but this idea of being able to stream right to the to any device and social media, 
um, could profoundly grow the game industry. And so, you know, in a way, I would like to see that happen. I'd like to see games become more prolific and more accessible and more available um, than they are currently. Because asking every single individual to go buy a console and, and set it all up and, and know how it works and buy games and all that, it's just an incredibly high hurdle, right? I'd rather be watching the YouTube video and go, wow, that, that world looks beautiful. Oh, I'm there. I'm in that world. That's what Stadia could have accomplished. It, it's seamless. For somebody who is in the video game space, I imagine many people just would dream of one day selling to like a Sony or another huge figure in the space like that. Once the deal was actually complete and you knew it was official, can you take us through your what's going through your mind when it's, oh my God, I'm I'm selling my company to Sony? Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually quite uh, complicated to sell a company to a big entity like that because there's a lot of chefs in the kitchen because there's people negotiating <laughs> yeah. the deals. More than a few chefs, to say yeah, the least. There's a lot of chefs in that kitchen. And um, my advice would be, if anyone's selling a company, I was told something which was very smart, and it turned out really a, to be a very good idea, was, David, your job is to stay friends with Sony. Like, that's it. You will not be negotiating anything. Do not start negotiating with Sony because... If, you, if your relationship with them becomes testy where you're sort of fighting over stuff or arguing over things, that's not the relationship you want to have. You want to be, you know, here to help Sony prepare for the future. And that's all, that's all your role is in this deal. And it's really quite, it was, it, honestly, I've, I've told other CEOs, like when they're close to selling, to start thinking that way. How can you stay aligned with the people who are buying you? And just let the business people do the business work behind the scenes. Like there will be negotiation, you know, but in reality, the head of Sony uh, at the time and 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 for for me, we had to stay aligned and focused on the future. And, and that worked out beautifully. So I have to say Sony handled that whole thing, uh, you know, close to perfectly. It was, it was a wonderful transition. Uh, it was a very fun process when you finally get told that the wire has arrived. It's hard to explain. It's kind of a very exciting day. You know the wire's coming, and then finally the wire's come. <laughs> it's like you're getting your first uh, paycheck at a, at a fast food joint in, in high school, probably very similar. Yeah, well, well it hap- it, I've had this um, multiple times in my career, but it's really it happens differently every time. So an example was when we were trying to get the rights to the Matrix movie, the director's had to sign a piece of paper to approve it. And that piece of paper, what meant that I or my team were able to make the Matrix games. And the directors were busy. They were on set shooting at the time. And so, but I need that signature or we don't have the Matrix. And so somebody walked over to them to get the signatures. And, um, and I'm sitting in America and they're on set. I'm trying to remember where they were shooting. I think it was Australia or somewhere, not where, where we were. And I, I'm sitting there with a fax machine. And as you know, fax machines just aren't really a thing anymore. But for the Matrix, fax machines were still a thing. And so I'm staring at this fax machine, waiting to see if this person can get the signatures. And they did. And then, and then boom, there goes the fax machine. So it's kind of weird just watching a piece of paper pop out of nowhere, which is so incredibly valuable to you. Like so, so, so important to your career. Those moments are pretty, 
pretty interesting. And you know what's so funny is I didn't record any of them. So I, I, I'm so dumb. I mean, the amount of situations I've hey, been hey, in. Hey, hey, you take that it, back. It, if I just pull the camera out or, <laughs> you know, I, I just, I can't, I can't believe how many things I didn't document. But those were all very important moments um, that, that happen. And, uh, you know, of course I remember them, but they're pivotal. And what's interesting is like, you know, um, when you're doing your podcasts, you're not going to be aware of that, but there's going to be sometimes you've made connections for people that, they, that that may change their lives because somebody got to hear this thing and that caused them to contact them or to reach out to or tell somebody else about it or whatever. It's amazing how what you're doing, you won't be aware of it, but you'll probably actually um, really impact some people's lives over time. And I think that's a really fun piece of how the world really works is these deals and things just occur. But when they do, they're very exciting. Yeah, I, I appreciate the how it works in the podcasting world world as well, because you might not know someone's even listening to you. And then you hear after them listening to weeks or months or years, like how much, you know, one specific episode was valuable to them or changed how they think about things. Uh, and, you know, all sorts of podcasters talk about how little, little people have just come forward and, and and thank them for for how meaningful it's been it's a funny thing that you you might not hear it for a while or you might not even know what's happening to your point but it can be so impactful so it's it goes back to what you did what you've done through your career but the the connected world is just it's pretty miraculous if you are looking to create a connection with your audience and maybe maybe it sounds weird like how i'm saying it right now or maybe it sounds totally normal anyway if you're looking to create a connection with your audience with your consumers clients potential clients in podcast form in audio form hit me up maximaxpodcasting.com i will help you turn those ideas or little sparks potential ideas flying around in your head into real life audio, beautiful podcast form that can do some very, really, really cool things for you, your business, and your listeners. Email me at maximaxpodcasting.com to save time with your high-quality podcast. Now, let's talk about David's latest business since he's just such a slacker. Caro, what you're up to today, Caro is... Not quite video game space. We're going to e-commerce and influencers and Shopify space. So Caro, you describe it as, I'm going to butcher this, but something like rocket fuel for influencers and, and brands and e-commerce. How, how did I do with that? Was it close enough? Uh, you just came up with our new tagline. Thank you. <laughs> I, I think I took it from you. So so you did, but I'll, I'll take credit for it as well. Uh, yeah, the, that wire will be coming soon. No, I'm just kidding. But I think it's really cool what you're doing. And, and clearly there's something about this influencer space that piqued your interest. So what was that in the first place? The, the, the actual sort of um, events that caused me to get interested in influencers was number one is I kept buying things because they recommended them. So I would like a certain photographer and he would say, this is the best light ever. I would buy the light and then go, that's a great light. Like this guy's right. What else is he recommending? And, <laughs> you know, influencers are out there doing their job and they tend to be um, tastemakers. So they, they can do it not just with things, but with clothing and sometimes 
people just say things to you that are really valuable. I once went to, I went, I'm a little bit of a weird character. I like to learn a bit about everything. Uh, like if I get into woodworking, I don't, I, I try to learn as much about it as fast as I possibly can. So I'll go to woodworking conferences. I'll fly to Iowa and spend a week with a master woodworker so I can learn how to do it. <laughs> I mean, who hasn't done that by now? I mean, come on. Yeah. Well, you're driving your truck around. It's great. Uh, <laughs> and I, I ended up at a conference with a guy who was giving a little, a little talk. And he, he mentioned, you know, this is the best varnish. And I said to him, you know, you've been doing this for 30 years. And you just say this is the best varnish. But in reality, that's really valuable to me. Because he just saved me 30 years of screwing up projects and, and I bought the stuff he recommended and it's incredible. And so that's really the point is that these people sometimes don't even understand their own value. They don't understand that the knowledge that they share or the information they share is really, really valuable to the, to somebody else who's trying to save time and um, learn about a certain subject really quickly. So um, my daughter was friends with influencers and they wanted to get their pictures taken because I, I do photography as well. And, um, and I was taking pictures of these influencers and I was talking to them about, um, you know, what's it like? And they explained how hard it is to actually get to work with brands that they like. Imagine there's like a million different clothing companies, but there's five of them that you personally wear all the time. And those five never reach out. But all the others seem to find you and constantly nagging you. And you're like, I, hate, I don't like your stuff. I'd never wear that. Also, there's only so many items of clothing you can wear and so many yeah. different brands you can wear. I know. So so and I have a daughter and I thought to myself, you know, if my daughter, if, if one of these like three or four brands reached out, it would literally melt her brain. If anyone else reaches out, she'll say who I don't even know that brand. Um, and so this is interesting. What, what could we do? technology wise that could actually help this and so we built technology to help pair influencers with brands to help brands find the influencers that like them and um and that technology uh, facebook ended up writing a success story on it they, they liked it because it was so authentic uh, i mean i was in a way semi-retired like i didn't really want to start another company um, but i fell into this because i just found it so interesting um it's such a an unsolved problem there are countless influencer agencies and things like that. There's people who are scouring through Instagram, troubling influencers, trying to get them to sell their wares. But why not work from the, from the perspective of, actually, this influencer already really loves my brand. Why don't we reach out to them? Um, and so that's what got us started. And the, the company is called Caro. Our website is getcaro, G-E-T-C-A-R-R-O.com. So get Caro means that um, if they have a Shopify store, which most influencers do, the ones that do have stores, then brands can collaborate um, with influencers, but they can also collaborate with each other. And so what, what Caro ended up becoming was we, we realized that we'd really helped with attention. It turns out, by the way, attention is the most valuable thing to brands. It's kind of interesting. If you think about yeah. it. You mean from their like KPIs and how they assess things? Yeah, everything is driven by attention, like all the all the funnels, all the math, all the you know, average order values, lifetime values. If you're not getting any attention, then then it's over. And, and, and so you say, have you ever met a brand that's like, please, no more attention? Like how much attention would you like your podcast to get? Right. And the answer is more. And then how much more? Well, more than that, um, and more and more and more and more and more and more, please. 
Yeah. So that so the problem is that if attention is this insatiable desire that all brands have, then who supplies it? And the answer is well, Facebook and Google, and they charge a lot of money for that. And that usually determines whether a brand can live or die. Is it can they afford the attention? Well, who's got a lot of attention? And the answer is influencers. They have a an abundance of attention. Sometimes they have so much attention that like if you have 15 million followers, you actually have a bit of a problem like because you have to keep coming up with content constantly to entertain them. Um, and that's hard. So never, ever, ever assume that being an influencer is an easy thing. It's a very hard thing to maintain and grow and grow and grow um, is extraordinarily hard to keep coming up with fresh content to keep everybody, you know, interacting and, and interested in you. But people do. And so that uh, that whole sort of opportunity space there, um, trying we, we sort of thought to ourselves, this is great that we've 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 managed to introduce all these people. But what if we were to find a way to actually wire them together so that influencers could sell brands products and, and maybe brands could even sell brands products. And that turned into this whole conversation on it's quite shocking when you actually talk to a brand maybe they sell spaghetti and i'm not kidding you'll talk to somebody they just make spaghetti that's their brand i make spaghetti and someday i'm thinking of adding another flavor of spaghetti we're going to have like a you know this other version and uh <laughs> it's spaghetti too the bizarro spaghetti so so the conversation goes something like this you know well i see you sell spaghetti and you know what are your plans for the future we're thinking in the future of having another another flavor of spaghetti then you say to yourself well well when you when you buy traffic to come and look at your spaghetti, that traffic better like that one spaghetti option that you have, or that, you know, those two different flavors. That's a lot of expense to move people to a website, crossing your fingers and hoping your spaghetti converts. And so then you look at their website and their website is filled with recipes that look fantastic, by the way, beautiful product shots of, of these, these meals, which have spaghetti in them, but with, but that are, you know, beautiful cutlery and, and plates and tables, place settings They're, They have all these other ingredients, of course, but then you say to the CEO, so you're going to sell that other stuff, right? Cause people today, what's actually occurring is someone's buying your spaghetti and then they're actually opening up another browser and they're going over to Amazon and to other places to try to find all of the things that you, that you tease them with that they want, but they can't buy from you. So why wouldn't you start to think about adding those other products to your store? And this is what led, this is what made Cairo grow. We have over 30,000 brands now. Um, and, and what happened was we said to them, you know, like you're selling bicycles. We have lots of helmet companies. Can we please put some helmets in your store? And by doing so, what we did is we just helped the helmet company too, because the helmet company is now getting extra visibility, AKA attention by putting their products into the bicycle store. If we can get their, their helmets into 10 bicycle stores and 10 skateboard stores, they're getting all of that traffic and attention for free. And so you can see how working with influencers is a really great way to get attention, but cross selling with partners and brands that you like. And so you say, well, how much, how much traffic is there in our network today, right this moment, uh, we have 350 million visitors a month hitting just the brands that have installed Caro. And so those brands are open for business. If you want to, if you want to partner with them, you can partner with them. Um, you just got to, of course, have something that they want. 
but that that opportunity i think is absolutely enormous there there are millions and millions and millions of brands in the world and and to help them sort of collaborate so we came up with this tagline sell more together and that's the mission we're on it's kind of an interesting thing in business these days is you can build companies that you don't actually have to have any products. So we as a company, we don't put things in boxes. We don't have warehouses. We don't have that. It's a bit like Etsy. Etsy doesn't have products. Etsy enables people to do business. Uber enables people to do business. It's like a wiring system that allows cars to be driven and people to be taken to places. Right. It's not not even their cars. What do they say? There, there's like that viral stat about like, you know, the biggest... Uh, accommodations company in the world doesn't even own hotels with airbnb like uber the transportation doesn't even own their cars uh so you're, you're doing the same thing in the influencer space now as well it's it's really mind-blowing yeah yeah so that's exactly right so we're just trying to make it possible for that influencer to be able to jump off a cliff in hawaii um and not worry about running a store but somehow it's just doing it by itself that's but both aspects of that sound magical. Yeah, no, and, and that's the real world, right? They need to keep creating content, but they would like to be able to think when they're sleeping tonight, someone's buying something from their store. It's very different from the way it used to get done. So the way the way the influencer industry worked when we first got started with Caro was a lot of them would just send their clicks over to places like Amazon. And so that means the influencer is being treated as an affiliate. I'm sure you get affiliate offers all the time. And affiliates basically mean that they know that you're just, in a way, you're not that important to them, but, but it's cool. Sure, if you, if you send us clicks, we'll, we'll give you a, you know, some of the, the sale. Um, Amazon publishes those numbers and they give between three to 5% for, for just about all the categories, nearly every category um, that the influencers sell. And that three to 5% has an interesting twist to it. The, the influencer doesn't get to keep the customer. So the influencer found somebody, convinced them to buy, let's call it an e-bike, and then they send them off to Amazon and they get three to 5%, but they don't own the customer. If they send them to Caro, into, into their store, not to Caro, but to, to their store powered by Caro, then they get to keep the customer. Now there's a big, big paradigm change here which is they just found a customer and closed the sale, that makes them the retailer. So what we're doing is we're upgrading influencers from being affiliates to retailers. And they get uh, usually around 30 to 40% of the sale, depending on what the product is. So it's up to the, it's up to the supplier. But generally it's, you know, there's certainly gonna be cases where you get influencers making 10 times more um, by working and having their own store than just sending their clicks off elsewhere and a 10 times improvement is that interesting to you well it should be but most importantly you own your customers which means that let's say you sell a hundred thousand e-bikes then you they're your customers which means you can remarket those customers for things relating to e-bikes and and you can imagine all the other companies that are going to want to work with you it's insane like the, the 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 value add and and here's the twist of the story is that the, the big influencers know this. So all the, the top agencies, you know, United Talent Agency, all the, all the large agencies already know this. Their influencers are already building stores. Um, the Kim Kardashians and everyone, they're all, they've, they've worked all of this out, but the 99% haven't. And the 99% is, is our opportunity to help and, um, and to try to help them um, do this 
you know, with minimal effort. And so that's why I'm, for some crazy reason, never went into retirement. I find this kind of fascinating. <laughs> I, th I think this is a huge opportunity. I, I, I think so. I mean, you're going to be excited about it. I think it's a, a good crazy reason that you didn't go into retirement. <laughs> so here we are. All right, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's get to a fan favorite segment called the Wild Business Shoutout of the Week. The Wild Business Shoutout of the Week! Wild Business Shoutout of the Week this is where we talk about a creative marketing campaign or approach or or launch approach or, you know, in this case, something in the video game space. So there's something, a story you have with when you were launching the video game for Aladdin that you wanted to share today. You mind taking us through that? I just, uh, it's an interesting question because I've launched a lot of different um, things over time, but there's sometimes you're not involved, meaning that I made the Aladdin video game, I programmed it, but I ended up being invited to the launch and I knew nothing about what was going to go down. So imagine you're just given an address and this is where the, the launch is going to happen. And it was actually during, during a uh, conference. I show up at this place and I, I go in and I get in the elevator and I go to the wrong floor. So I go to the wrong floor <laughs> in the elevator and, and the door opens and the entire, I'm talking the entire floor of this giant hotel was, everyone was in Aladdin costumes, like in, in you know, the genies and the, the, all the animals and everything. And I'm looking, I, I'm literally like, what is going on? Um, <laughs> and I, 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 so I go down to the right place. I go in this, in this room there's a thousand of the world's press. So you've got the press from everywhere coming to see the launch of the Aladdin video game. I'm like, what? And, and, and I realize this is what happens when Disney's involved, right? Uh, been, I, I've launched yeah. so many video games and it's so hard to get attention. But when Disney does something, then boom, it's, it's such a different experience. And so out comes Jeffrey Katzenberg on stage with a, with a lion cub because um, you know the next thing was the Lion King and he's talking up and doing this and then out comes um, Richard Branson the head of Virgin and Richard Branson tells us a story and and um, I, I think he showed a video at that one but he he basically I don't know if you know but Richard Branson nearly died in a parachute accident he's got some of the craziest life stories ever I yeah. mean, he, he's like dodged hurricanes on his island like yeah Oh, big time. Yeah. So he, he basically, he, he, he was in a parachute accident. A guy saved him. Um, and part of the story is about how he went straight back up and did another parachute jump because he didn't want to be scared for the rest of his life of parachuting. And, uh, and the guy that saved him, of course, was, you know, got a job instantly at Virgin um, and got taken care of. <laughs> now that is how you nail a job application. Yeah, that's how you get a job is you save the CEO during a, 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 <laughs> yeah. a long story short. The head of Sega was over from Japan and he was there in the room. Like I got to meet that literally the CEO of, of Sega. It was ridiculous. And then in the middle of the, the, this event, they, the doors swing open and in come all of these costumed Aladdin characters. So they had a whole like singing, dancing thing. And I, I just, I, at the time, because you got to remember, we just make the video game, but, um, and, and this game could have been called Jumpy Boy and no one would have cared less. But by doing it with Disney, it was spectacular. And so that's that's the kind of thing that it, it becomes a little bit of a drug. You want more of that. You want to experience those kind of things. Um, 
you know, later when I got to do the Matrix game, we had the same kind of thing where you had the green carpet, you know, Hollywood. Uh, we had, uh, I think it was um, uh, Tiesto did the music. For, it was like the DJ doing, you know, for our party. Oh my God. Like it was, it was like ridiculously cool. And so the game industry just has the most interesting and crazy. Just to explain that a little farther, the game industry, when I first would do business deals like in Hollywood, I would come to Hollywood and I would sit in a room with a whole bunch of executives that didn't play video games. They were kind of old and um, it wasn't really their thing. And so I kind of felt I, I would sort of look at the room and just go, I don't think these people are interested in, in the industry at all. Um, and then over time, the people that grew up playing video games ended up being the executives at these companies. They are every sports person in the world grew up playing video games now, you know, all that. Right, all yeah. that. They're all fully compliant, understand why games are cool. Every musician has grown up that, you know, that isn't old. Um, every musician has grown up uh, playing video games. And so the whole world opened up to us. And I literally got to experience that, you know, the difference. I, I, I once got asked to go and visit Michael Jackson because he wanted to play our game before anybody else. And so, you know, next minute I'm in Neverland with Michael Jackson you know and and, and you kind of realize that this game industry breaks down every wall uh, there's no you know it's it's compatible with people in every industry because they're they find it interesting and it, it's such an amazing um industry to be involved in i think for that reason is you're welcome everywhere you go and what's interesting is when i first started um, I would get my hair cut and the hairdresser would be like, what do you do? And I'd say, I make video games and they would freak out. Like they've never met anyone from the game industry. And it's the exact opposite. Now, uh, everywhere I go, it's like, oh, oh, my brother-in-law makes games or my, you know, there's some relation to how the game industry has become just part of, of society. Um, and I love that. And I, I think it's going to be great to see that, that continue over time. I am so happy you used the word compatible. I don't, I don't think you even realized the pun when you said it, but the, the double entendre there just <laughs> is icing on the cake. Let's wrap up with some rapid fire Q&A. You ready for it? Let's do it. All right, we'll see if it's compatible. All right, let's get wild. We mentioned at the start that you kind of got your accent beaten down, as you said, when you came to the States. So your accent's a little bit different now than it was growing up. What tip do you have for somebody who wishes to change their accent? Ooh, interestingly, if you're with the people that speak your accent, you're not going to be able to lose it unless hmm. you're an actor. So yeah. it's there to stay. But if you're if you're on your own, it's going to happen naturally. Don't worry about it. It'll just happen. <laughs> and, and shout out my dad who grew up in southern Indiana and had a southern accent growing up. And a lot of my dad's side has a southern accent has a southern that's a tongue twister a lot of my dad's side has a southern accent but hey you would have no idea now the way he because he i guess he kind of taught himself in college but it's really interesting yeah i think the people dynamic plays into it a lot who you're surrounded with you mentioned richard branson's parachute accident recovery story re rescue story you have sky dived sky doven sky Skydiving? I don't know the term for that. But... <laughs> gone skydiving, yeah. Yeah, so. you've gone skydiving. What's something about skydiving that completely shocked you compared to what you expected? 
Oh, that that's an easy one. There's a few things actually. So so again, my rule being that I want to experience and learn about a lot of things. If someone says, let's go skydiving, it's not optional. You don't go, oh, I think I will or I won't. You're like, do I have I ever done that? No. Damn, I gotta go skydiving then. First thing that happens when you roll up is they they ask you to sign a waiver to sign your life away. I have never, ever, ever been videotaped signing a waiver before. That was the first time. Like, seriously, you need, you have to videotape this? Like, you need, why do you need that good evidence? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not like they're pushing you out of, out of an airplane or anything. Yeah, my, my brain is like, when did you learn you needed to do the video thing? How many people have you killed to get to the point where you have to start videotaping? Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, we get on the plane. The plane's terrible. Pilot is wearing a parachute because the plane's so bad. Not kidding. <laughs> oh, God. And, and then finally, um, they push me out of the plane. And there's this really funny thing that happens when you do your first parachute jump, you're actually doing it with somebody else as a tandem jump. Right. Yeah. I don't, you're not allowed to go by yourself, right? That's right. So I have this guy who I've just met attached to me, you know, with, you know, the straps, there's no give. You're literally joined together. You're one person. And here we go. We're out of the plane. We're falling. And, and the one thing, by the way, they didn't tell you is how fast you fall. That's the one, my one takeaway from the whole thing was I didn't realize how fast a human body would fall through air. I, I thought it would be really fast, but it was 10 times faster than I expected. Um, you fall really fast. And so anyway, here's the twist is I'm six foot eight inches tall. This guy was short. So picture us joined together like he, he looks like he looks like you know uh, that that thing where yoda's on uh, luke skywalker's back um, yeah yeah, yeah. In, in one of the <laughs> oh i have this God. i have this guy i'm wearing him like a backpack right and then he and then we've got this parachute attached to us so we're coming into land he wasn't honestly he wasn't good we ended up coming in as stupidly fast so i'm trying to run as we come flying in and I'm trying to run with this guy on my back. And and that did not go well. I don't know if you've ever tried to run with a guy on your back, but it's not easy. It's <laughs> like, like doing 20 miles an hour. Um, and so I ended up just eating it. And, and, I, I, and I ate it, but he had to go with me. So it's not just me falling. It's both of us falling on top of me. And so... I, I ate it and they ended up making a really cool video with, uh, you know, the Queen song, Another One Bites the Dust. It was <laughs> oh, good because I ate it really good with that. Um, but it was funny. They, it, it turned out I actually got hurt. So I was some genius put an altimeter right on my chest, which meant that. As Wait, you what, the, what was that word? Altimeter? Yeah, it's like this triangular piece of plastic with a little uh, dial on it so you can see what height you're at oh oh like altitude got it got it, got yeah it. okay and i yeah. sw and that got pushed right into my my chest so i hurt my ribs you know because i when i hit it, it was pretty hard and i i landed on that damn altimeter so am i going to go skydiving again hmm <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it depends if you got your little friend with you yeah no. <laughs> The answer is never, but it was really interesting and it was a really fun day. So there you go. Yeah. And you have quite the skydiving story from it. You, uh, how your guide felt must have been how Shaq felt when I was skydiving with him. It's pretty much <laughs> the same story. Exactly. <laughs> All right. What's something a little quirky about your personality that maybe your daughter, somebody else rolls her eyes at you, but it's who you are. 
I don't know. The one thing that my daughter does roll her eyes at is I talk to myself. I don't know why I do that, but I... Hey, you're fun to talk to. I'll give you credit. If, I, if, if I'm making a sandwich or something, I, I find myself talking, like, for some reason, vocalizing what I'm thinking. And it's not and it's it's not something I do all the time, which makes it even more weird. So I'll just be, like, thinking about something so intensely that I start talking about it. And uh, and that, that makes her think I'm a total freak. So that that's... That's definitely, I don't know why I do that, but that's just a thing. I, I think you're only half freak, so don't be too hard on yourself. <laughs> but what, and then you mentioned a woodworking conference. What is the coolest display of woodworking that you've ever seen? What got me into woodwork, woodworking is there's a rocking chair called a Maloof rocking chair. And Maloof, M-A-L-O-O-F, is this dude who sadly passed away now, but he made these rocking chairs um, that are organic and, and so it was the idea that wood doesn't have to be flat and hard and straight like a table or something like that that you can create curves and um and and make wood very organic and a lot of people were inspired by him so you'll see a lot of organic stuff um out there now and and he wasn't the only one doing it but he was one that a lot of woodworkers when they look at a maloof rocking chair it, it's like this someday I'm going to make one of those, right? Someday, because it's a really hard thing to build. So that's why I had to go fly to another state to try to take lessons to build a Maloof rocking chair. Long story short, it turns out they're actually up north of Los Angeles. And I ended up going there and meeting the team. I bought one of the chairs at auction and, um, and I took it up there for them to, uh, this guy said, oh, I know them. I can get, I can get you in. And they sort of opened the gate and let us in and then they then they saw that i just bought one of their rocking chairs and they were like you know we have the full history of this chair would you like to here's pictures of it and all the rest of it and then they ended up uh, doing a repair on it and making it you know as good as new and so it's a small world again i mean what the heck am i doing in this weird woodworking world but in reality it's it opens all kinds of interesting doors and i'm i'm going to just say that to you more as a tip just for your life is is when you do all these different things, like I've done water skiing and you know snowboarding and skiing and skydiving and whatever, CNC woodworking, 3D printing. If you do lots of things, it means that when you meet people, you're going to meet people and have something in common with them. Um, because they're going to say to you, oh, I play golf. And you look, oh, you know, you've hopefully got some golf stories or some tennis stories or, you know, whatever it is they're into you want to be able to have a rapport with them. And, um, and if you can do that, it, it's incredibly helpful in your business life. Incredibly helpful. I love that. Yeah, it's magical. And I'll parallel that to the podcasting world or, or if you're doing any sort of job that involves interviewing and meeting lots of people. <laughs> Every one of those conversations undoubtedly has stories like you've shared today that just spark something in you and, and, and you want to share with people when you come across somebody that's interested in that subject area, uh, or you can refer them to, you know, people that are experts of all these different areas. So yeah, there's, there's real magic in being open to new activities and, and meeting new people and having these conversations. And there's gotta be some sort of weird woodworking, woodworking wild world award that we got to give to you, David, because you, <laughs> you have some of the most fascinating hobbies and open-mindedness to these activities I've ever come across. No, I mean, podcasting's the same. I love it, right? So what, what happens when I'm at an event, like here's, to give a, a clear example, I'll be at an event where I'm speaking on stage, but I'm actually 
paying attention to what microphones they're putting on me and and i'm interested i'll i'll talk to the audio guy about his setup you know like are you using sm7b's or something if you're podcasting like what what <laughs> what, what is the you know I, I care about all of that stuff and that it's actually genuine interest i'm just interested in knowing how it all works so there's no mystery to it and if somebody's never set up a microphone or set up or recorded things and there's a lot it's an interesting thing you can learn a lot about and, and when you do you're starting to appreciate what other people are doing i remember back when we did the aladdin video game the the animators literally would say to me you're the only one we've ever worked with that cares about our animation like you actually care you want it to look good you actually are learning about how animation is made so that you can make it look as good as you can in the game and that's so weird like it's so unusual <laughs> you're so weird no yeah, yeah that curiosity is i think it brightens people's day when they see you have a true curiosity for something or, or, or take an interest when they're in that work even if it's something completely different than what you do so i'm all about that I'm totally with you on it last thing in terms of genuine curiosity i'm genuinely curious about your trip to neverland because that that is like something out of a movie or something but what was your favorite moment from visiting neverland and the whole michael jackson experience i drive up to, i mean literally just they just gave me the address and i drove i just drove there and i drive up to neverland and i and i get to the house and there's an elephant walking around with some dude and i'm like okay um this is interesting i go inside and they say um you know michael will meet you in here and this room has really elaborate furniture and i'm standing there waiting for, and in he walks and he's got some black plastic bags you know like trash bags and he hands me one and he says put this on because we're going to have an egg fight and i'm like wait what <laughs> and uh and this butler dude walks in with a whole tray of eggs and um and and we went out into the back garden and he had all kinds of interesting people there, but his kids, of course, and, and some other people as a movie director and stuff. And we ended up having a full on egg fight. Now I'm just asking, and I'll, I'm in Michael Jackson's home videos having an egg fight. And I ask you this question, when was the last time you had a full skill like egg war? Yeah, I, I don't, uh, God, I don't, if not ever, maybe probably less than age five, but yeah. I don't ever remember. So that was how the, that was how it started with him. Like that was that was straight out of the gate, and it was just interesting experience after interesting experience. And he really liked. We we got along, and we ended up agreeing to work on a video game together. So he he had always wanted to. Act, he he did have a Michael Jackson Moonwalker video game, but he'd never actually really designed a video game. And so he was interested in in the whole how do you make a game from scratch. And so that's where the conversation ended up going. Um, and I ended up getting invited back and I spent time with him, you know, on the game design. So that was a very fun, uh, a fun experience. And next, next time I'll tell you about the Playboy Mansion. Oh my God. We, God, we, we might need to expand for an hour on that one. No, but that, that's incredible. I, I think uh, well worth the egg fight. What video game was it, by the way, that, piqued Michael's interest and had him invite you over in the first place? The Matrix. He wanted to be the first to play The Matrix. Ah, okay. 
That makes sense. All right, so now we're going to do 20 questions on the play by No, I'm just kidding. Now, David, this has been out of this world. I mean, it's literally been to Neverland, and it's been to avid, you know, Pandora and worlds that expand our, our boundaries. So this has been so cool, and everything you're up to from the video game world to Caro is is just really, really fascinating and, and, and just love the stories that you have to share. So thank you so much for coming on and, and, and being so generous with your time. And where's the best place for people to connect with you as a person, but also to learn more about Caro? If anybody wants to connect with me, the best place to do that would be on LinkedIn. Um, if they would like to check out Caro, go to getcaro.com. And if they want to um, ask questions about that, in fact, I would highly recommend emailing hello at getcaro.com. Mention this podcast and, and we'll take really good care of you. So that's if you have a Shopify store. So if you have a Shopify store or you're planning to, to uh, like you're an influencer and you're thinking of building one, then, uh, then please reach out and we'll help, we'll help you. Perfect. I, I really, really appreciate that. Awesome stuff. And you say hello uh, before we say goodbye, final thoughts. It could be a quote, a line, whatever you want. Leave us with some wisdom here to take home. Well, it's a saying I've been attaching myself to, and it's going to make a lot of sense to you now, is um, learn something about everything and everything about something. That's basically um, how I live my life, and I think that's a, that's a really good saying. David, 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 thank you so much for your everythings and your somethings and your anythings. Thank you so much for sharing the wisdom and stories and wisdom and stories from your incredible career. And thank you, wild listeners, for tuning in to another episode. If you want to hear more wild stories like this one, make sure to follow the Wild Business Growth Podcast on your favorite app and tell a friend about the podcast. Maybe play video games with them as well. Maybe, maybe not, but maybe yes. You can also find us on Good Pods. And for any help with podcast production, you can learn more at maxpodcasting.com. Until next time, let your business run wild. Bring on the bongos! Bongos!